Hey, hey, and welcome to episode 10 of the ROK podcast. And this one goes into the, are you freaking kidding me, files. We got a good one. Billy Sheehan, bass player from David Lee Roth, Mr. Big, Winery Dogs. He's played with Steve Vai, Tony McAlpine, whew, you name it, he's played with them. This guy is a legend, and he's on our show. Can you believe it? I am stoked. Also, in the indie spotlight this week, The Monday Feeling from Korea. They'll be kicking your ass a little later, right after the Billy Sheehan interview on the ROK Podcast. Hey everybody, this is your bass player Billy Sheehan. You're listening to me right here on the ROK Podcast. Come off sunida. Mr. Sheehan, welcome to the ROK podcast. Uh, my pleasure to be here. I just read some really uh, good news for fans of you and uh, Mr. Big today on your Facebook page saying that you are about to record a new album. Uh, yeah, we're writing for it now. So as soon as we get the songs that we think are uh, really good, uh, we'll be committing them to digital documentation and uh, we'll have them out uh, ASAP. What kind of time frame do you look at when you're making an album? I mean, I'm in a little band over here in Korea, and uh, it takes us months to get one song ready to play. Really? Uh, oh, yeah, we're we're pretty slow. <laughs> uh, but we only practice once a week, so it's not uh, a real gig. But, I see. Um, yeah, how does, how does the writing process work? Well, we get together in a room. Uh, it, traditionally, with Mr. Big... Uh, Three of us live in Los Angeles, so uh, the, the three of us that live here, myself, Paul Gilbert, and Pat Torpe, we get together and come up with ideas, musical ideas. We send them up to Eric, or Eric comes down to visit us from San Francisco, and he does his uh, lyrical thing or singing thing. Uh, sometimes some of the uh, lyric and singing things are I, our ideas also, uh, so it can come from anywhere. Sometimes Eric has musical ideas too. We just combined... Um, the work of us three and him and um, get to a point where we uh, have a bunch of songs, but it goes relatively quick. Uh, now, Paul doesn't live in LA anymore. So he flies in to meet Pat and I, and he was here for two days and we came up with about, uh, about 10 pieces of music. They're not completed songs. They're just the beginning uh, uh, rough structure of what a song would be all subject to change drastically. And uh, we'll do that again in about another week or two. Uh, we'll get together and do the same thing. And we'll do that enough times where we got enough things that uh, have begin to turn into songs now. But generally, um, I mean, I did a rock and roll fantasy camp one time, and I was the camp counselor with about five or six people. And we wrote a song in about oh, about a half an hour. <laughs> and I'm, uh, I'm something wrong here. <laughs> and then we recorded it the you know the next day 
pretty easy. And if you watch other artists do it, like if you watch the Beatles uh, in the studio, you know, I've got bootlegs of them putting songs together and they, you know, come up with an idea and a kind of a melody line, some, some uh, temporary lyrics, fine tune it. And uh, it can be pretty quick. I, I, I wouldn't, uh, I would, I, I would imagine your band could do it quicker than a month. Maybe if somebody uh, coached you through it, but uh, maybe, but, and maybe if we practice more than once a week, that might help. That'd help. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what kind of stuff are we talking about here? Is it very, very similar? Or are you kind of changing your style a little with the band? We never consciously try for a style or a, or a genre or a type. We just come up with the ideas we come up with and let nature take its course. So I think, uh, nature taking its course will sometimes take into consideration uh, all of our lives, all of our experience, all of our whatever mood we happen to be in collectively, whatever mood the world happens to be in that's affecting us. Uh, so uh, many things can change, but we never consciously try to change or try to be a style or try to do this type of song or that type of song. We do try to map things out as far as an album goes to have some dynamics. So there is usually at least one, sometimes two slower, quieter pieces and uh, a bunch of uh, mid-speed, uh, heavier or louder pieces and a, and a couple, one or two fast and raucous pieces, kind of the way you would put a movie together where you, do, you got a car chase scene, you got a love scene, you got a uh, right. dramatic scene, you know. So we try to cover those grounds um, but again, we're not always conscious that we're doing that. We that that choice usually ends up when we pick songs out of the twenty or thirty that we will have written for the record to try to make it into make the album into a uh, kind of a cinema, if you will. Sure. Can I ask about Pat? How's he doing? Doing great. He's doing real well. He's had a great attitude, and uh, he's really come around. When, when things first went down, we were all quite worried about it. We all expressed our concerns, Pat. Because uh, you never know what you're going to do when you get diagnosed with something that's that serious. Sure, you know, you're going to curl up in a ball or, or go fishing and give up or uh, start to fight back. And uh, he wasn't sure what he was going to do at first, but then he, he made the conscious decision to, to start fighting back. And uh, he's doing great at it. Will he be playing on the album? Of course. Awesome. That's fantastic news. We may have to have some other... Uh, uh, drumming uh, assistance on like some really fast or loud things, but uh, we'll we'll see how that goes. Maybe not. Maybe not. We're, we're gonna we're gonna cross that bridge when we come to it. Uh, but that's good that he's still ready to go. That's great. Very much. He's excited about the records. Excited about playing. I think it's good for him too. Really gives him a you know you got to have a reason to live. You got to have a reason to get up in the morning. You got to have a goal. Sure. Uh, take your mind off things. Yeah. There's a lot. I had a stepfather. Uh, and he uh, retired and passed away soon after. And uh, uh, all the people that knew him, uh, that worked with him, said that happens with everybody that works. Uh, they, they, they retire, and in a couple of months, they're gone, even if they retired in perfect health. It's very, very true. Uh, I talk with working men, that it happens a lot. So I imagine it's, it's true with, with, with any line of work. You've got to, uh, you got to keep at it. You've got to have a reason to live. Uh, You've got to challenge yourself. Uh, you got to keep on running, and uh, when you stop, uh, maybe you'll get lucky and coast along for a long time. But I don't want to take that chance, and I'm never going to stop playing. <laughs> oh, I hope not. 
Yeah. I hope not. Okay, let's go let's go way back to the beginning when you were a little kid. Um did you start on bass or did you start on guitar? I had a guitar first, so I had to start on guitar by default. Basses were harder to come by when I was young. So that way, anybody that bought a bass was instantly guaranteed a gig in about five bands because <laughs> people didn't have basses. That wasn't necessarily the reason, but that was just a, just a side, uh, side note. So the guy around the corner from me, he was a bass player. He was a cool guy. I wanted to be like him. So he let me pick his bass up and hold it. And then when I finally got enough money, uh, I managed to get my first bass, and I was off and running. What was that, your first bass? A Thunder P bass. Actually, my very first bass was a Hagstrom bass. I often forget about that and fail to mention it when I'm doing interviews, but it was a Hagstrom bass. It was a tiny little three-quarter thing. didn't really amount to much. So the, the I, I didn't really, no offense to Hagstrom, but I didn't consider it a, a real bass at the time because I didn't see real players playing a Hagstrom. I saw them playing P basses and Gibsons. And so uh, when I got my P bass, that was my first real bass. That's not a bad first bass. Yeah, I still got it. Really? Oh, yeah. Must be beat up by now. Do you still play it? I bring it out once in a while. They just came up with a miniature version of it. that I posted the link for it on the Internet. But that's the bass I played uh, right up to uh, the second Mr. Big record. Wow. Wow. And then you switched to Yamaha. Yeah. Uh, at the time, my bass was uh, pretty beat, as you can imagine. It sure. played thousands of shows and all done all the modifications on it. So Yamaha came to me. I knew I had to replace it. And at the time, Fender wasn't uh, doing well. They were, they, companies have, you know, they ebb and flow. And uh, Fender wasn't in a good position at that time. The instruments coming out at that time, uh, late 80s, were not, uh, were not their best. They're great now. Again, they're awesome. But uh, for a while, they were bad. So Yamaha came to me. And I knew their quality control was second to none. And they, they made a... A prototype bass for me, which was awesome. I used that on the uh, Eat and Smile tour uh, and on the Skyscraper album, a little bit on the first Mr. Big record. And then uh, they came up with the Attitude bass right after that. And I've been with that ever since. Do you remember the first time you played a show? Yeah. When was it? What did you do? Uh, we played in a, I played in a basement party in a band that I was in with a keyboard player and a drummer. And a singer. And then after that, it was the St. Anthony's School Dance down in the basement of the St. Anthony's Church. We played a show there. Mostly Young Rascals songs, because the keyboard player was a B3 player. Then I got my uh, my real bass, and I got asked, and I was playing a couple of jazz gigs with a sax player and a drummer in my high school. And I got asked to come and play in this rock band because they needed a bass player. At first, they asked to borrow my amp. I said, no way. And they, and they said, well, you will play bass. I go, well, I'll give it a try in your band. And I said, I'll only do it until I make enough money to make a PA system for my little jazz trio. We played the Keenan Youth Center in Lockport, New York. And it was jam-packed, and there were girls everywhere. And I said, you know, maybe this rock band thing is kind of a good idea. <laughs> and from then on, it was, uh, I was really... Uh, Got the fever, and I started playing in that band, which eventually turned into Talos years later. Oh, I love Talos, by the way. Thank you. I'll be honest with you. I found out about you through David Lee Roth, obviously, back in the day, Eat Him and Smile. Um, and then I remember some interviews where you said you auditioned for Max Webster, 
And I am a diehard Kim Mitchell, Max Webster fan. I love Kim. So I started doing my research and I found out about Talis and I started listening to Talis. Woo. You've played with some good players, man. <laughs> yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, thank you. I, I uh, the Talis guitar player, uh, joined me for the Christmas show I just did last week in Buffalo. Oh, I heard about that. So great player. Oh, we had a riot. He's still a great player, great tone. And, uh, We've done a bunch of Talos reunions over the years. The drummer's a little bit of ill health right now. I hope he comes out of it. And if he does, we may do another one. But it was good. Actually, I, I was I did actually uh, didn't ever perform with Max Webster, but I did other rehearsals with them for their uh, one of the records after High Class and Borrowed Shoes, I think. Maybe Universal. Yeah, yeah, I was supposed to play on that. So I, I rehearsed all those songs with them. The end, it didn't work out, and I, so I went back to Buffalo. Which isn't far from Toronto, but we stayed in touch. And I'm a huge Kim Mitchell fan. I love the band very much. Yeah, you know it's funny. I interviewed Paul Gilbert a while back, and I asked him because he's a big fan of Kim Mitchell as well. And, yeah. Uh, I had no idea that Kim was even known in the states until I saw you guys talking about him. Talos did a song called "Battle Scar," which was a which is a song they did together with Rush, and. Uh, we uh, we kind of spread the word about uh, Kim Mitchell far beyond the uh, Canadian border, as a result. So uh, they well, Buffalo's, uh, Buffalo's not that far away. Yeah, we're right over the bridge. Matter of fact, we get to uh, Toronto uh, TV stations; they would get ours. So we'd always laugh at their. Uh, we'd watch the hilarious House of Frightenstein late at night, and they would watch uh, Irv Weinstein Channel Seven Eyewitness News from Buffalo. So we <laughs> always get all the Buffalo stations too. Yeah. <laughs> Buffalo and Rochester, New York. I used to get all their shows. Yeah, we used to play uh, that that whole area. We'd play uh, Oshawa, Buffalo, Toronto, a uh, bunch of Canadian cities, uh, Hamilton, uh, and then we we across the U.S. We started in Buffalo, worked our way to Rochester, Syracuse, down to Erie, down to Pittsburgh. Then we started to branch out: New York City, Boston, uh, Baltimore. Uh, all over the place. So eventually by the end of Talos, we were, we were at cover most of the East coast. So we were, we were a pretty popular band, if I dare say. But what happened? Why well, didn't you guys, why didn't you guys get signed and make it big? I mean, you had a, everything you needed at the yeah. time. Well, after playing in UFO, I went off and did a tour with UFO, which is a, you know, a big band doing big tour in Europe. I came back to, Talos realized we got everything we need and more. We're we're on time and we're in tune and we got our shit together. Where right, UFO, right. God bless them, but at the time I played with them, they it was kind of falling apart. I'm thinking, geez, we got it, and we we you know had material and songs and we were writing like crazy and uh, we had guys flying to Buffalo that uh, that uh, considered signing us. We did showcases. We did a showcase, a private showcase for Clive Davis. In New York City, wow. we had John Kaladner come out to a show of ours. We had uh, the best of the best of the A&R people and music business people come out, and they loved the band and wanted to sign the band and loved the songs. And But it just never came together. It just never uh, quite came together. In retrospect, looking back, um, since then, I'm the only one from the band that really went on anywhere, and I think that's a lot to do with your motivation. I think that uh, the motivation that was occurring with the other two guys in the original three-piece Talos and then the other 
three guys when it switched around was it was a, at a different level. I was always I was always at it. I would work. I was working every single day. I had a to do list on a legal pad that was you know three pages long of phone calls to make and record company people to get back to and you know uh, everything you could imagine to do better for the band and get better gigs and do be- get better gear and learn more songs. And they were kind of happy just playing around Buffalo and having a good time. So I think in the end, that was, that was part of it. Uh, it's hard to get everybody on the same page on any endeavor, no matter what. When you're ordering a pizza, it's hard to get everybody to agree on the same thing. So uh, unfortunately, it was uh, went through some uh, changes, fell apart, got back together, fell apart, got back together. And then when David Lee Roth called, I said, thank you very much. I'll, be a, uh, I'll take an aisle uh, seat, please. <laughs> that was that was a pretty good career move. Well, yeah, I'm a very very uh, 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 strange set of circumstances uh, when it went down, uh, but I'm supremely grateful that it did, and grateful to Dave. He called me and said he was uh, they were working on a movie, and would I like to be in it? So I was just heading out to L.A. to start the first tour of the Talis, first show of the Talis Ingve tour. So I told him, well, I'm going to be out there. He goes, oh, good, we'll have a meeting. So sure enough, uh, we did. And he said, well, there's really, there is a movie, but that wasn't why I called you. <laughs> that was a cover story, so I wouldn't tell anybody he's going to start a band. Because uh, you didn't want anybody to know. He wanted to keep it a secret. So I said, well, I'm, your secret's safe with me. Let's do it. And he goes, okay, right on. We'll find a guitar player and we'll go. So uh, I did the Ingve tour, finished. He flew me out to L.A. We went looking for guitar players and... Uh, that was how the band started. When you say you did the uh, the Ingve tour, did you play with Ingve, or were you was Talis playing at the same gig? Uh, Talis opening for Ingve. Okay. We, uh, it was a kind of match made in heaven because I didn't. Not too many people uh, were aware at the time, but Ingve came to America. The first reason was to start a band with me, and uh, Mike Varney was going to set it up. It's going to be me, Ingve, and a drummer. I'm not sure if it was uh, Leonard Hayes from Y&T or if it was Dean Castronova, but it was going to be one of those drummers. They were Bay Area drummers, and Mike Varney, who was setting it up, was in the Bay Area. Unfortunately, it didn't work out, so Ingvi went out uh, on his own, scheduling or whatever, uh, and uh, got involved in Alcatraz and did a solo record. So by then, uh, Talos was doing really good. We had toured with a lot of, opened for a lot of big bands, toured with Van Halen, so we got signed by the William Morris Agency, and the first tour they, they gave us was, the, uh, was doing the Ingve slot. So our first show was in L.A., and Dave came out to the show. The day the, That was the day after I had the meeting with him. A few rumors started to fly, but people didn't put two and two together yet until uh, until the tour ended. And then suddenly I, I end up in L.A., and people are saying, what are you doing here? And I go, oh, just hanging out. <laughs> just came out to spend some time in L.A., <laughs> when in fact I was out there uh, with Dave. You know, I'm uh, I'm also a diehard Van Halen fan, and I must admit, when when Dave came out with his Eat 'Em and Smile record, I said, "Oh my God, I don't know, man. You can't replace you can't replace Eddie." And then I heard the album, and I thought, "Oh my God, this is fantastic!" It wasn't just the 30th anniversary last year, right? Yeah, yeah. Was there a lot of pressure when you follow up an icon like Eddie Van Halen? Uh, yeah, well, Van Halen is a band. They were my favorite band in the world. So here I am with their singer doing a band in competition with them. So, you know, uh, 
it was uh, an interesting time. We had heard the Van Halen record first as we were finishing up our record. And I remember getting together with Dave and listening to, was it 5150, their first record? That's right, yeah. And uh, I, got, I got to admit, I, I, we knew, I know Dave really well, and, and uh, I, I can kind of read his, his take on things. He was a little disappointed in it. He thought it was going to be way better because it was kind of a you know kind of a pop rock album and the record did great and I'm glad for them and I was a huge Sammy Hagar fan when he was in Montrose so I, not much else that I listened to him but I think he's got a great voice um, uh, but you know we, it was kind of funny Dave was kind of he was kind of let down when he heard it. he thought he thought uh, he'd have more competition so in his mind he he didn't uh, it was funny how he looked at it. Uh, so, but for us, we were just having a blast. We were even thinking about, oh, we got to beat Van Halen. You know, we got to, you know, we just wanted to play and do the, do our very best. Steve was already uh, a force to be reckoned with. I had already, uh, you know, uh, made my made my mark in a lot of ways, uh, and had got asked to join Van Halen um, prior to uh, Dave leaving a couple times. So I knew I was. Uh, you know, they all knew who I was, and we had opened up for them, and I had been in touch with Eddie several times and stuff like that. So, it. Uh, wait a sec. Wait a sec. You were asked to join Van Halen. Oh yeah, I, I, I didn't talk about it much until after um, uh, Michael was out of the band when Wolfie got in, only because Michael's a good friend of mine, and I and I didn't want people to think that it was uh, negative towards him that suddenly they're going to replace him with me, but. Uh, after the first tour, we, the, when we opened up for them, Eddie came up to me and gave gave me his number and told me not to tell Michael. And then uh, that didn't work out. But then after the, uh, I went to see them on uh, the Fair Warning tour, and Eddie asked, asked me straight out. And then I went to see him on another another show, and Dave said to me, "Yeah, I heard I heard Eddie talk with you. You know, when we're done with the tour, we're gonna fly you out." And I thought, "Wow, holy shit, this is real, unbelievable." And then their, that tour ended, and it didn't come to be. And uh, in uh, the 1984 tour, uh, I was up on stage with Ed at Soundcheck, and he was talking about doing an instrumental record and having me play with him. And then again, uh, before Dave got back in the band, after Sammy left the first time, uh, I went up to Ed and Al's house and jammed with them, and they wanted to do something with me. So it happened a bunch of times. And I consider it one of the greatest honors of my life that they would even consider it. Uh, and I love Michael's plan. I think he's the, he is the Van Halen bass player. And he should be the Van Halen bass player right now, too. But unfortunately, he's not. But uh, so, uh, And I don't even know if it would have worked, uh, uh, how happy I would have been doing it, whatever. But uh, it did happen. And uh, so that was a great honor. So when it came time to do Eat Him and Smile, I was pretty conversant with the situation within the band. So uh, I think it's one of the reasons Dave called me. He knew me and, you know, he, he knew I was already, already ready to go. So his original guitar choice was Steve Stevens though. Seriously. From, uh, yeah. From uh, Billy Idol. And, uh, right. but Steve, you know, he had a great gig with Billy. He didn't necessarily want to give that up and it was a great opportunity, but you know, I think he decided to stick with Billy Idol. I think he did the right thing too. Amazing guitar player. He's fantastic. Yeah, really great. A lot of people don't realize how much more versatile he is than than what what you might see on a Billy Idol record. He's really a great player and a great producer, great sounds and tones. He's just awesome with stuff like that. So uh, I told Dave, I know another Steve. 
Steve and I had already talked about uh, doing a record together because we were on the same label. Talos was on the same label as Steve. So we, uh, and I'd already met with him a couple of times, seen him around LA. And so we, we got in touch with Steve. He came over and it was pretty automatic that he would be the guy. Yeah, he's all right. Eh? Yeah, he's a, well, Steve had a sense of humor and that Zappa-esque kind of thing, the quirkiness and the craziness kind of kind of work well with Dave because Dave is a showman and there's a comedy element to the show and so when the live performance came about with Edom and Smile it was a riot I mean we were running around and going crazy and having a guitar bass battle and you know there was shtick going on comedy moments and things like that so it was very entertaining even to people that weren't musicians I mean a lot of musicians came out to see what we did you know and uh, because of all the uh uh, noise we made, you know, and playing and uh, unison playing and uh, counterpoint playing between bass and guitar and Greg Bissonette's awesome drumming. And, you know, so it was a, a lot of musicians came out, but a lot of people that weren't musicians, we, you know, we, we didn't want to lose them either. So that's where Dave always comes in. He's the showbiz 101. He's the, he's the world's greatest front man. So yeah, he, he really did it. Uh, he made it happen. It was a fantastic tour. I remember seeing that tour in, uh, Ottawa and uh, blew me away. You guys were fantastic. I mean, that was the first time I've ever seen any of you guys or Dave. I never saw Van Halen before that. Fantastic show. I remember that. I'll never forget that that show. You know, without being too uh, ass kissy here, yeah. it really did. That show really did change my musical life. I mean, getting to see you and and Steve Vai play together. Um, there's no way you could not be influenced by what you were watching. No way. Well, that's very kind. I, I uh, Through the years, I see the impact that record has made. And uh, I, mean, I was literally in the jungles of Indonesia, way out of Jakarta in a radio station. And uh, I had uh, a kid literally come out of the forest holding the Eat Him and Smile record. <laughs> when I was in Mr. Big, we were doing interviews down there. And uh, everywhere I go, all over the world, somebody's got an even Smile record in English or Spanish. And uh, the Spanish one is great too. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, you you left Dave, and we all know the reasons why. Um, and he started Mr. Big. Geez, you played with some really really good guitar players. Holy, holy crap! Um, in interim, though, I also did that Tony McAlpine record, which is one of my favorite records I played on. You know, I just talked to him about a month ago. Yeah, he's great. He's a great guy. Which a, which McAlpine album did you play on? Very first. Oh, was that after Eat Him and Smile? No, it was actually during. I was actually working on Eat Him and Smile, and I would, went up to San Francisco for a weekend. We cut that record in two days. Really? Yeah. That was a typical Mike Varney budget. <laughs> There's no, no, <laughs> no money for anything here. I don't even know if I had a hotel. I think we stayed in a spare room in the studio. And we uh, we went in. I'd, I'd go in and track while Tony was in across the parking lot learning the – refreshing his memory for the next song. We'd, we'd pass each other in the parking lot. He'd go into the studio to record, and I would go into the practice room to learn the next song. And uh, so that's how we went back and forth, back and forth. The record was – the Steve Smith drums were already laid down. We finished it off, and uh, one of my favorite guitar records. You know, when you play with all these guys, I mean, you okay, let's see. You've played with Van Halen. You've played with Vi, Gilbert, McAlpine, Kotzen, 
do you have to change your style at all, or does everything just kind of flow just when flows. you get together with them? You just do uh, what the moment requires. I've played for a long, long time, so you know I, I've uh, done all kinds of types of music with all kinds of players and all under every conceivable condition. So uh, you know, sometimes you pull back, sometimes you push forward. There's you got a uh, through the decades, you get a big, big bag of tricks and a million different ways of approaching the same thing. So depending on the player, and generally I'm I'm with the drummer too. Generally the drummer's the guy I'm watching. The guitar player is not always my first point of attention. Uh, as a bass player, I, I lock in with the drummer right away and talking with the drummer and learning the drummer's language. And even today when I do a tour, I'll usually do the whole show with the drummer for a couple of weeks before any anyone else ever shows up to rehearse for a tour. So, uh, and then the drummer, the, the guitar player rather, is then, then what comes later, you know. But then again, when you're writing or coming up with the melodic things, uh, you, you interact with the guitar player right away. And sometimes, like in some of the Winery Dog stuff recently, I, some of the songs are built around bass lines. I'll come up with a bass line, then Michael start playing, and Richie start playing, and there, then there's the foundation for a song. You know, so, but... Uh, yeah, I've been very lucky to play with a lot of great players, on uh, guitar players and, and uh, drummer. did work with Michael Schenker briefly also. Of course, jammed with Yngwie a bunch of times. Uh, played with a, 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 probably more guys than I can remember. <laughs> That's incredible, though, because you're not just doing the, you know, ACDC, dum-dum-dum-dum-dum bass lines. Like, you're, there has to be a way to not step on the guitar player's toes. Yeah, there is. Uh, you play with the drummer. Once you're locked in really solidly with the drummer, you can get a, get a, away with a lot more notes because nothing you're doing is out of time and out of context because it's built in with the drums. And I know when I when I do a sound check, like back in the old days, Mr. Big, me and Pat would get up and do a sound check. Once in a while, like people would be standing around and say, "Man, that that, that sounds like the whole band right there." And so we try to try to make it so between just bass and drums, we pretty much got the whole musical palette covered right there. Then when you enter guitar, it's frosting on the cake, and the vocals is the cherry on top of that. So you really, uh, but, but so working with guitars has a lot to do with really uh, giving them a foundation to stand on, then, uh, then also having the, the capability of counterpoint. Some guitarists, their styles don't include that, and they want, they want just, you know, uh, eighth notes or sixteenth notes of the root note played underneath them while they solo on top of it. But I've also noticed that a lot of guitar players, that's kind of a, it's kind of a weakness that they can't play over changes. You listen to really great players, they can play over any chord change or any bass line imaginable and make it work. So a lot of rock guitar players got used to this, you hold an E while I solo mentality. And uh, I can do that, and I have done it, but uh, to me it's pretty boring for the audience to hear the guitar player go through his thing while the bass player is holding a single note. Right, Whereas right. if the bass player moved within the scale that he's playing and moved with the drums, well, now we have some animation. Now we have uh, Bach had his right, right hand was amazing, but his left hand was the counterpoint. And that, that made uh, amazing music as a result. Uh, at the recent Christmas show, uh, we revisited Crossroads by Cream, Eric Clapton, Jack Bruce, Ginger Baker, all three of them going off but all three of them in such incredible syncopation and synchronization that uh, it worked perfectly. You didn't think nobody's overplaying here. This is, this is a 
this is a symphony. It's it's all working together right. So that's kind of the goal. You really try to you do your thing, but you've got to keep in mind there's other people on stage with you. There's other people there. So by paying attention to them, so I'll watch and gauge a guitar player right away. Does he need me to just hold a note because he can't play over changes? Okay, I'll do that. I'll help him out. Uh, can he hang with somebody moving around a little bit? Okay, I'll move a little bit. Can he hang with somebody going off and uh, work with them and some variations thereof of those three aforementioned approaches? Then, then we, then we go. You know, so. But uh, it's all based really on how that all works with the piece of music you're working with. If it's a jam, it's one thing. If it's a song, it has parts that got to be played. They got to make sense. So uh, through the years, that stuff becomes second nature. Yeah, I need the bass player just doing dum 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 dum. <laughs> I'm a very intermediate guitar player, so he's some of the greatest uh, music ever. Uh, you know, the Highway to Hell, Back in Black, and Everything that came before it was uh, just some of the best music ever. And the bass player I love in that band. I use a, him as an example all the time when I'm doing my clinic as a young bass player. I go, learn Highway to Hell. Learn the whole record. Learn the bass parts. Sure. Even, even the early Van Halen albums were a lot like that. Exactly. Learn, learn what Michael did. Michael's an amazing bass player. I got bootlegs of him singing and playing. He's killing. It's amazing. He's all over the place. Playing great bass. And... Uh, you know, locking in with drums, great tone, great vocals. So, yeah, find great players that aren't all over the place and start there. Then decide what you want to do. If you want to go a little bit more all over the place, cool. If not, then do your thing. God bless you. Right. All right. I want to jump ahead. You know I'm in Korea right now. You've been here a bunch of times. Yeah. Uh, I want to get away from music just for a second. And I just wonder if you've had a chance in all the times that you've been here to actually get out and see Seoul. Last time and I was there, I, um, we finished the last Wonder Dog show and I stayed for a day and then I did clinic there. So I had a whole day off in Korea and, uh, really, uh, amazing, uh, transition from the first time we were there in the early nineties to, uh, to where it is now. It's, uh, just uh, magical. It's fantastic. I love Korea. I love Korean food. I think the, the most beautiful girls in the world are, are Korean girls. Those are the most striking beauties I've ever seen. Just just incredible. My wife is going to be very happy to hear that. <laughs> well, I, well, you're a lucky man to have a Korean wife. They're very beautiful and very sweet people, too. And I have kimchi in my refrigerator as we speak. Is that right? I do. I swear to God. Korean kimchi or Chinese kimchi? I think it's Korean. It's organic, though, here. And it's got... It's got, it got uh, it got uh, affected by being in Southern California, so it's, it's organic uh, cabbage uh, kimchi. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, you know, I, I've been living here for a bunch of years. I've seen concerts in, you know, four, four or five different countries. How do the crowds compare in, well, you guys are really big in, in, uh, in Japan, but also in Korea. You know, you're playing to a, a bunch of people who don't really speak English that well. How's the how's the crowd in the Asian countries? Uh, generally great. Uh, most people listen to records; they know the lyrics, so they don't uh, you know they can sing along, phonetically at least. Uh, but the last show we did there in Korea with the Winery Dogs at uh, some some venue that was owned by the Hyundai people, I believe. And I've said this before; might have been one of the best shows of my life ever. Uh, it was really? jam packed. And the people went out of their minds. 
And so we went out of our minds and it was just a great, great night. It was uh, just a fantastic. And every time we've played there, the crowds have been spectacular. We play a lot in um, Southeast Asia, Indonesia. I get more email from Indonesia than anywhere. Thailand, Malaysia, Philippines is out of control. Uh, Bangkok, Thailand, amazing. Uh, so that whole area is really great. And then into China and Hong Kong and uh, Taiwan. Uh, we all, we're always done really well there. And we're, that part of the world, of course, every country is wildly different. A lot of people cliche lump things together. But uh, every country has its own culture and it's completely different and uh, is a whole new world of experience. I love that part of the world. Uh, my experiences in Korea were fantastic and uh, I'm looking forward to being there as much as possible. I'd love to do a, more shows in Korea too and play more cities, but unfortunately the economics of time and, and uh, whatever uh, sometimes prevent that. But if that ever happens, I'd be very happy. Yeah, I was I was really uh, bummed out actually when you guys came here with the winery dogs because it was sold out and I couldn't go. But yeah, I, I can't believe I haven't seen you perform in thirty one years. Oh. Yeah, the, uh, well, um, I feel old now. I did a couple other shows in Korea. I mean, we done Mr. Big, of course. I did a Steve Vai show there once too. We've done done a bunch there, and I got a lot of friends there, a lot of dear friends. Uh, uh, one particular uh, young lady who's been a Mr. Big fan has flown all over the world to see me in the Winery Dogs and Mr. Big. And she's uh, yeah, a little connection to Korea all the time. It's very, very, very sweet. Her and her friend come to see us all the time. And uh, so uh, we, we feel a great connection to, uh, to Korea. When was she by in Korea? Oh, God. We played on a beach. Played on and a I, beach? Mind, Busan. Might have been, yeah. I think it was. We played on the beach, and in my mind, I thought, oh, my God, Korea is not only the most beautiful girls in the world, but we're going to be on the beach? This is going to be unbelievable. <laughs> I never it, heard about Steve Vai yeah. coming to Korea. What? Huh. I never heard about that show. Yeah, we, I remember we played it. I forgot wow. who was on the bill. But uh, it was an outdoor show we played, and I, I thought, beautiful Korean girls on the beach, this is going to blow my mind. But it was a cold day, and uh, there was not one bikini ever anywhere, so I was a little disappointed. Yeah, they're they're not big on the bikinis here. They they cover up pretty well. <laughs> yeah, most most people uh, in the West fail to realize that most of uh, cultures Japan, Korea, uh, China, uh, Thailand, certainly Malaysia, and Indonesia they're very very conservative. Oh, for sure. All right, listen, I don't want to take too much of your time. I got one more question for you. Sure thing. Uh, okay, you got Mr. Big coming up in 2017. Do you think that'll be out? before 2018 i think we're going to deliver it april 1st april so 1st yeah 2017 yeah you're going to write and record in three months we could do it sooner really wow. well uh, yeah we could do it sooner i'm sure that's awesome all right good luck thanks so much for this i really appreciate it my pleasure you take care or maybe i'll see you in ottawa or montreal soon i hope so thank you bro all right happy new year you too
On this episode's Indie Spotlight, we feature a band from Osan, South Korea, called The Monday Feeling. These guys are great, fantastic. They are Korean, but they sing in English. They write in English, which is amazing when you consider how difficult it is to even speak in a second language. But they do it. They have toured everywhere in Korea. They've just finished a Japanese tour, and they are fantastic. We're going to listen to them right now on the ROK Podcast. This is The Monday Feeling. Open.
that's it for episode 10 of the ROK podcast. Special thanks to Mr. Billy Sheehan. Special thanks to the Monday Feeling. I know I'm flying solo this week. We'll make that better next week, I promise. Check us out on Facebook. Check us out on SoundCloud, iTunes, Instagram. We're everywhere. The ROK podcast. See you next time.